Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm your narrator, Tyler, and um, we are going to be continuing with The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, before we get back into it, though, um, I would like to remind everybody that my Patreon is now live. That's patreon.com slash books at bedtime. Uh, there's not a lot of content yet. There's not, well, there's not really any content, but that, that uh, it will be getting... I will be posting stuff to it um, starting this week. So um, there will be exclusive podcast episodes. Um, I'll be reading separate stories. And um, at some levels of support, you can even submit like your own fan fictions or be a guest on um, this podcast. Uh, you, could, you could be commenting on the book as I read it on this podcast um and then uh i also my um my buy me a coffee uh url has changed um to make it more uniform so that is also buymeacoffee.com slash books at bedtime so anyway um i would really really appreciate the support and i i i'm trying to keep this ad free um for everybody um, but this is this is a pretty major time commitment for me to produce all of this, uh, so please consider supporting. Anyway, uh, okay, back into things. <clears throat> Chapter 38. Sympathy in the Mains. Mains was the oldest building at the university. Over the centuries, it had grown slowly in all directions, engulfing smaller buildings and courtyards as it spread. It had the look of an ambitious architectural breed of lichen that was trying to cover as many acres as it could. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good description. Okay. Um, it was a hard place to find your way around. Well, yeah, having overtaken other buildings, that, that would make it... Uh... Okay, anyway, sorry. It was a hard place to find your way around. Hallways took odd turns, dead-ended unexpectedly, or took long, rambling, roundabout paths. It could easily take twenty minutes to walk from one room to another, despite the fact they were only fifty feet apart. <laughs> Dear, it's terrible. It's like a mile of hallways. Okay. <clears throat> More experienced students knew shortcuts, of course, which workrooms and lecture halls to cut through to reach your destination. At least one of the courtyards had been completely isolated and could only be accessed by climbing through a window. <laughs> Rumor had it that um, there were some rooms bricked off entirely, some with students still inside. Their ghosts were rumored to walk the halls at night, bewailing their fate and complaining about the food in the mess. <laughs> yeah, uh, that sounds like a school for you. My first class was held in Mainz. Luckily, I had been warned by my bunkmates that Mainz was difficult to navigate, so despite getting lost, I still arrived with time to spare. When I finally found the room for my first class, I was surprised to find it resembled a small theater. Seats rose in tiered semicircles around a small raised stage. In larger cities, my troupe had performed in places not unlike this one. The thought relaxed me as I found a seat in the back. I was a jangling mass of excitement as I watched other students slowly trickle into the room. 
Everyone was older than me by at least a few years. I reviewed the first thirty sympathetic bindings in my head as the theater filled with anxious students. There were perhaps fifty of us in all, making the room about three-quarters full. Game of Thrones. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, where was I here? Oh, okay. Uh, some had pen and paper with hardbacks to write on. Uh, some had wax tablets. I hadn't brought anything, but that didn't worry me over much. I've always had an excellent memory. Master Hem entered the room and made his way onto the stage to stand behind a large stone work table. He looked impressive in his dark master's robes, and it was bare seconds before the whispering, shuffling theater of students hushed to silence. "'So you want to be arcanists,' he said. "'You want magic like you've heard about in bedtime stories. You've listened to songs about Taberlin the Great, roaring sheets of fire, magic rings, invisible cloaks, swords that never go dull, potions that make you fly.' He shook his head, disgusted. Well, if that's what you're looking for, you can leave now because you won't find it here. It doesn't exist. Uh, let's see. Uh, at this point, a student came in, realized he was late, and moved quickly into a vacant seat. Hem spotted him, though. Hello, glad you chose to attend. What is your name? Gel? Or Gel, maybe. Um... Spelled gel. I'll just say gel, because uh, that's funnier. Gel, the boy said nervously. I'm sorry, I had a bit of a hard time. Gel, Ham interrupted. Why are you here? Bell gaped. Oh, sorry, gel. God damn. Gel gaped for a moment before managing to say, for principles of sympathy? I do not appreciate tardiness in my class. For tomorrow, you may prepare a report on the development of the sympathy clock its differences from the previous more arbitrary clocks that used harmonic motion, and its effects on the accurate treatment of time. The boy twisted in his seat. Yes, sir. Hem seemed satisfied with the reaction. Very well. What is sympathy, then? Another boy hurried in, clutching a hardback. He was young, by which I mean he looked to be no more than two years older than me. Hem stopped him before he could make it into a seat. Hello there he said in an over-courteous tone. And you are? Basil, sir. The boy stood awkwardly in the aisle. I recognized him. I had spied on his admissions interview. Basil, you wouldn't happen to be from Yule, would you? Hem asked, smiling sharply. No, sir. Ah, Hem said, feigning disappointment. I had heard that Yulish tribes use the sun to tell time, and as such have no true concept of punctuality. However, as you are not Yulish, uh, I can see no excuse for being late, can you? Basil's mouth worked silently for a moment as if to make some excuse, then apparently decided better of it. No, sir. Good. For tomorrow you can prepare a report on Il's lunar calendar compared to the more accurate civilized Aetherin calendar that you should be familiar with by now. Be seated. Basil slunk wordlessly into a nearby seat like a whipped dog. Hem gave up all pretext of lecture and lay in wait for the next tardy student. Thus it was. The hall was tensely silent when she stepped hesitantly into the room.
It was a young woman of about eighteen, a rarity of sorts. The ratio of men to women in the university is about ten to one. Ham's manner softened when she entered the room. He moved quickly to get up the steps to greet her. Ah, my dear, I am suddenly pleased that we have not yet begun today's discussion. He took her by the elbow and led her down a few steps to the first available seat. She was obviously embarrassed by the attention. I'm sorry, Master Hem. Mains is bigger than I'd guessed. No worry, Hem said in a kindly fashion. You're here, and that's what matters. He solicitously helped her arrange her paper and ink before returning to the stage. Once there, it seemed as if he might actually lecture, but before he began, he looked back to the girl. I'm sorry, miss, she said. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry, miss. She was the only woman in the room. And poor manners on my part. What is your name? Rhea. Rhea. Is that short for Rianne? Yes, it is, she smiled. Rianne, would you please cross your legs? The request made with such an earnest tone that not even a titter escaped the class. Looking puzzled, uh, Rianne crossed her legs. Now that the gates of hell are closed, Hem said in his normal rougher tones, we can begin. And so he did, ignoring her for the rest of the lecture, which, as I see it, was an inadvertent kindness. It was a long two and a half hours. I listened attentively, always hoping that he would come to something I hadn't heard from Abanthe, but there was nothing. I realized quickly that while Hem was discussing the principles of sympathy, he was doing it at a very, very basic level. This class was a colossal waste of my time. After Hem dismissed the class, I ran down the stairs and caught him just as he was leaving through a lower door. Master Hem? He turned to face me. Oh, yes, our boy prodigy. I wasn't aware you were in my class. I didn't go too fast for you, did I? I knew better than to answer that honestly. You covered the basics very clearly, sir. The principles you mentioned today will lay a good foundation for the other students in the class. Diplomacy is a large part of being a trooper. He puffed up a bit at my perceived compliment, then looked more closely at me. Other students? he asked. I'm afraid I'm already familiar with the basics, sir. I know th the three laws and the fourteen corollaries, as well as the first ninety- Yes, yes, I see, he cut me off. I'm rather busy right at the moment. We can speak of this tomorrow, before class. He turned and walked briskly away. Half a loaf, being better than none, I shrugged and headed for the archives. If I wasn't going to learn anything from Hem's lectures, I might as well start educating myself. This time when I entered the archives, there was a young woman sitting behind the desk. She was strikingly beautiful, with long, dark hair and clear, bright eyes. A notable improvement over Ambrose, to be sure. She smiled as I approached the desk. What's your name? Kvoth, I said. Son of Arladin. She nodded and began to page through the ledger. What's yours? I asked, to fill the silence. Fela. I should double-check pronunciation on that, because it does come up later. Fela. Okay, Fela. That's the correct pronunciation. Fela. I'll, I'll try to make that a little less like Bella, like, hey there, fella, and more, um, maybe, fe fella, fella, yeah. I'll add a little, a little A in there, fella. 
Fela. Fela, she said. Yeah, Fela, she said, without looking up, then nodded to herself and tapped the ledger. There you are, and go on in. There were two sets of double doors, not uh, leading... Oh, sorry. Two, there. God. What is with me right now? <sighs> I'll get through this eventually. There were two sets of double doors leading out of the antechamber. One marked stacks, and the other tomes. Not knowing the difference between the two, I headed to the one labeled stacks. That was what I wanted. Stacks of books. Great heaps of books. Shelf after endless shelf of books. I had my hands on the handles of the doors before Fela's voice stopped me. I'm sorry, it's your first time in here, isn't it? I nodded, not letting go of the door's handles. I was so close. What was going to happen now? The stacks are arcanum only, she said apologetically. She stood up and walked around the desk to the other set of doors. Here, let me show you. I reluctantly let go of the door's handles and followed her. Using both hands, she tugged one of the heavy wooden doors open, revealing a large, high-ceilinged room filled with long tables. A dozen students were scattered throughout the room, reading. The room was well lit, with the unwavering light of dozens of sympathy lamps. Fella leaned close to me and spoke in a soft voice. This is, this is the main reading area. You'll find all the necessary tomes used for the most of the basic classes. She blocked the door open with her foot and pointed along one wall to a long section of shelving with three or four hundred books, more books than I had ever seen in one place before. Fela continued to speak softly. It's a quiet place, no talking above a whisper. I'd noticed that the room was almost unnaturally quiet. If you want a book that isn't there, you can submit a request at the desk, she pointed. They'll find the book and bring it out to you. I turned to ask her a question and only then realized how close she was standing. It says a great deal about how enamored I was with the archives that I failed to notice one of the most attractive women in the university standing less than six inches away. Which, you know, he's 15, so that's... <laughs> Any of you who uh, were 15-year-old boys um, may remember the effect that an attractive woman had on you, especially one standing very close to you. Uh, your whole brain tends to go a little bit fuzzy, and uh, you get thoughts. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, how long does it usually take them to find a book? I asked quietly, trying not to stare at her. It varies. She brushed her long black hair back over her shoulder. Sometimes we're busier than others. Some people are better at finding the appropriate books. She shrugged, and some of her hair swung back down to brush against my arm. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that is going to set your mind racing when you're a 15-year-old boy. Just, like, can't not notice that sort of input. Uh, okay, um, usually no more than an hour. I nodded, disappointed by not being able to browse the whole of the archives, but still excited to be inside. Once again, half a loaf was better than none. Thanks, fella. Sorry, I should... That's No, I, I put too much emphasis on the... Uh, uh, thanks, fella. I went inside, and she let the door swing shut behind me. But she came after me just a moment later. One last thing, she said quietly. I mean, it goes without saying, but this is your first time here. Her expression was serious. The books don't leave this room. Nothing leaves the archives. Of course, I said. Naturally, I hadn't known. Fela smiled and nodded. 
I just wanted to make sure. A couple of years ago, we had a young gent who was used to carrying off books from his father's library. I'd never even seen Lauren frown before that, or talk much above a whisper, but he caught the boy in the street with one of his books. She shook her head as if she couldn't hope to explain what she had seen. I tried to picture the tall, somber master angry, and failed. Thanks for the warning. Don't mention it, Fela. Headed back out the entrance hall. Oh, back out into the entrance hall, sorry. I approached the desk she had pointed out to me. How do I ask, sorry, how do I request a book? I asked the scrive quietly. He showed me a large log, um, no, sorry. <laughs> he showed me a large log book, half, I can, I can totally English, guys, I swear. I, oh, no, let's see, I read that. He showed me a large log book, half filled with students' names and their requests. Some were requests for books with specific titles or authors, but others were more general requests for information. One of the entries caught my eye. Basil, Illish Lunar Calendar, History of the of, <laughs> of the Aeterin Calendar. <laughs> Poor guy. I looked around the room and saw the boy from Hem's class hunched over a book, taking notes. laptop doesn't lock me out. Anyway, um, <clears throat> where was I? Um, I wrote Kvoth, the history of the Chandrian, reports of the Chandrian and their signs, black eyes, blue flame, etc. I went to the shelves next and started looking over the books. I recognized one or two from my studies with Ben. The only sound in the room was the occasional scratch of a pen on paper or the faint bird wings Oh, sorry, bird wing sounds of a page turning. Like this. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, let's see. Uh, rather than being unsettling, I found the quiet strangely comforting. Later, I was to find out that the place was nicknamed Tomes. Because, oh, sorry, not Tomes. It's not Tomes. Oh, okay, no, no, it, it is named Tomes. Okay, uh, later I was to find out that the place was nicknamed Tombs. Yeah, that was correct, Tombs, uh, because of its crypt-like quiet. Eventually, a book called The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus caught my eye, and I took it over to one of the reading tables. I picked it because it had a rather stylish embossed dragon on the cover. But when I started reading, I discovered it was an educated investigation into several common myths. Uh, by none other than the uh, chronicler to whom he is speaking and telling this tale. Uh, for let us remember that Kvoth is telling this story to the, um, to the chronicler and to Bast in his, in his, um, in the, at the Waystone Inn. Okay, anyway, sorry. <sighs> I was halfway through the title piece, explaining how the myth of the dragon in all likelihood evolved from the much more mundane Dracus when a scriv appeared at my elbow. Both? I nodded, and he handed me a small book with a blue cloth cover. 
Opening it, I was instantly disappointed. It was a collection of fairy stories. I flipped through it, hoping to find something useful, but it was filled with sticky sweet adventure stories meant to amuse children. You know the sort. Brave orphans trick the Chandrian, win riches, marry princesses, and live happily ever after. I sighed and closed the book. I had half expected this. Until the Chandrian killed my family, I thought they were nothing more than children's stories, too. This sort of search wasn't going to get me anywhere. After walking to the desk, I thought for a long moment before writing a new line in the request ledger. Gloth, the history of the Order Amer. Sorry, is that Amir? Amar? There's so many words to remember. Amir. Yeah, okay. History of the Amir. Origins of the Amir, the practices of the Amir. I reached the end of the line, and rather than start another one, I stopped and looked up at the scriv behind the desk. I'll take anything on the Amir, really, I said. We're a little busy right now, he said, gesturing to the room. Another dozen or so students had filtered in since I had arrived, but we'll bring something out to you as soon as we can. I returned to the table and flipped through the children's book again, before abandoning it for the bestiary. The wait was much longer this time, and I was learning about the strange summer hibernation of the Sus Susquinian when I felt a light touch on my shoulder. I turned, expecting to see a scriv with an armload of books, or maybe Basil, uh, come to say hello. I was startled by the sight of Master Loren looming over me in his dark master's robes. Come, he said softly, and gestured for me to follow. Not knowing what might be the matter, I followed him out of the reading room. We walked behind the scrivs' desk and down a flight of stairs to a small featureless room with a table and two chairs. The archives was filled with little rooms like this, reading holes designed to give members of the Arcanum a place to sit privately and study. Lauren lay the request ledger from the tomes on the table. I noticed your request while assisting one of the newer scrivs in his duties, he said. You have an interest in the Chandrian and the Amir? he asked. I nodded. Is this in regard to an assignment from one of your instructors? For a moment I thought about telling him the truth, about what had happened to my parents. About the story I had heard in Tarbeen. But Monette's reaction to my mention of the Chandrian had shown me how foolish that would be. Until I'd seen the Chandrian myself, I didn't believe in them. If anyone would have claimed to have seen them, I would have thought they were crazy. At best, Lauren would think I was delusional, at worst a foolish child. I was suddenly pointedly aware of the fact that I was standing in one of the cornerstones of civilization, talking to the master archivist of the university. It put things in a new perspective for me. The stories of an old man in some dockside tavern suddenly seemed very far away and insignificant. I shook my head. No, sir, it's merely to satisfy my curiosity. I have a great respect for curiosity, Lauren said with no particular inflection. Perhaps I can satisfy yours a bit. The Amir were part of the church back when the Aeteran Empire was still strong. Their credo was Ivare Enim Yuge, which roughly translates as for the greater good. They were equal part knight-errant and vigilante. They had judiciary powers and could act as judges in both the religious and secular courts. 
all of them, to varying degrees, were exempt from the law. I knew most of this already, but where did they come from? I asked. It was as close as I dared come to mentioning Scarpy's story. They evolved from traveling judges, Lauren said, men who went from town to town bringing the rule of law to small Aetorin towns. They originated in Aetor, then. He looked at me. Where else would they have originated? I couldn't bring myself to tell him the truth, that because of an old man's story, I suspected the Amir might have roots much older than the Aetorin Empire, that I hoped they might still exist somewhere in the world today. Lauren took my silence as a response. A piece of advice, he said gently. The Amir are dramatic figures. When we are young, we all pretend to be Amir fighting uh, and fight battles with willow witch, willow switch swords. It's natural for boys to be attracted to those stories. He met my eyes. However, a man, an arcanist, must focus himself on the present day. He must attend to practical things. He held my eyes as he continued to speak. You are young. Many will judge you by that fact alone. I drew a breath, but he held up a hand. I am not accusing you of engaging in boyish fantasy. I am advising you to avoid the appearance of boyish fantasy. Sorry, fancy. Boyish fancy. That's what he was saying. I am advising you to avoid the appearance of boyish fancy. And, you know, that is actually really good advice. Sorry. Uh... No, yeah, that's, I'm going to say that. That is really, really good advice. Um, if you want to be taken seriously when you are young, um, you must appear very serious, especially if you actually are serious, um, and people people have a tendency to dismiss the young um, out of habit or out of, almost out of, well, if I think about it, there are sort of implicit expectations, I guess, out of society. And it used to be, for the vast majority of human history, that if someone got to be old, you listened to them, because clearly they had done something that worked. And if someone was very young and had ideas, then you tended to take it with a grain of salt, because a foolish idea could result in your death. Very easily, actually. Um, medical practices not being uh, what they are today. It was very easy for people to die. And uh, so if someone was old, that means they had managed to live a long while without dying. And so you tended to listen to their wisdom. And, and also just the they had experience and they'd seen a lot of things, and learned a lot of things from life. So um, you tend to listen to people when they are old and and when they're young, you tend to dismiss them because, what do they know? They're young. So so it goes that uh, that's the sort of natural progression of being taken seriously, is that you get taken more and more seriously as you get older. To a point until you become senile, and then, then you have to accept that you are no longer going to be taken seriously. And that is a hard thing for my... my uh, older relatives to accept, I think. Uh, and most older people, I think. It's very hard to go from being taken seriously to not being taken seriously. So I think that is a very difficult thing to, for most people to accept. 
to go from being the wise man to the fool again. <sighs> In some senses, it's best to just never stop, uh, never stop playing the fool and being the... Being the learner. Anyway, okay. Uh, he gave me a level look, his face as calm as always. I thought of the way Ambrose had treated me, and nodded, feeling color rise to my cheeks. Lorne brought out a pen, and drew a series of hashes through my single line of writing in the ledger book. I have a great respect for curiosity, he said, but others do not think as I do. I would not see your first term unnecessarily complicated by such things. I expect things will be difficult enough for you without that additional worry. I bowed my head, feeling as if I'd somehow disappointed him. I understand. Thank you, sir. Chapter 39. Enough Rope. And uh, let me tell you, that, that makes me think of the phrase, enough rope to hang oneself. So... Now we will see about young Kvothe's follies, I suppose. Uh, the next day, I was ten minutes early to Hem's class, sitting in the front row. I hoped to catch Hem before the class started, thereby saving myself from having to sit through another one of his lectures. Unfortunately, he did not appear early. The lecture hall was full when he entered by the hall's lower door and climbed the three steps onto the raised wooden stage. He looked around the hall, searching me out. Ah, yes, our young prodigy. Stand up, would you? Uncertain as to what uh, was going on, I stood. I have pleasant news for everyone, he said. Mr. Kvothe here has assured me as to his competent, uh, as to his complete grasp of the principles of sympathy. In doing so, he has offered to give today's lecture. <laughs> Classic. Uh, he made an expansive gesture for me to join him on the stage. He smiled at me with hard eyes. Mr. Kvothe? He was mocking me, of course, expecting me to slink down into my seat, cowed and ashamed. But I had had enough of bullies in my life, so I climbed onto the stage and shook his hand. Using a good stage voice, I spoke to the students. I thank Master Hem for this opportunity. I only hope that I can help him shed some light on the, more impo on the most important subject. Having started this little game, Hem was unable to stop it without looking foolish. <laughs> How the turntables... Okay, um, <laughs> how the tables turn. Okay, as he shook my hand, he gave me the look of a, uh, a wolf gives a treed cat. Smiling to himself, he left the stage to assume my recently vacated seat in the front row. Confident of my ignorance, he was willing to let the charade continue. I would never have gotten away with it if not for two of Hem's numerous flaws. First, his general stupidity in not believing what I had told him the day before. Second, his desire to see me embarrassed as thoroughly as possible. Plainly said, he was giving me enough rope to hang myself with. Apparently, he didn't realize that once a noose is tied, it will fit one neck as easily as another. <laughs> I faced the class. Today, I will be presenting an example of the laws of sympathy. However, as time is limited, I will need help with the preparations. I pointed to a student at random. Would you be so good as to bring me one of Master Hem's hairs, please? Hem offered up, uh, sorry, Hem offered one up with an exaggerated graciousness. 
As the student brought it to me, Hem smiled in genuine amusement, certain that <laughs> certain the more grandiose my preparations were, the greater my embarrassment would be in the end. I took advantage of this slight delay to look over what equipment I had to work with. A brazier sat off to one side of the stage, and a quick rifling of the drawers in the work table revealed chalk, a prism, sulfur matches, and an enlarging glass, also known as a magnifying glass, uh, some candles, and a few oddly shaped blocks of metal. I took three of the candles and left the rest. I took Master Hem's hair from the student and recognized him as Basil, the boy Hem had browbeat yesterday. Thank you, Basil. Would you bring the, that brazier over here and get it burning as quickly as you can? As he brought it closer, I was delighted to see that it was equipped with a small bellows. While he poured alcohol onto the coal and struck a spark to it, I addressed the class. The concepts of sympathy are not entirely easy to grasp, but, under, but underneath everything there remain three simple laws. First is the doctrine of correspondence, which says similarity enhances sympathy. Second is the principle of consanguinity, which says a piece of a thing can represent the whole of a thing. Third is the law of conservation, which says energy cannot be destroyed nor created. Correspondence, consanguinity, and conservation, the three C's. I paused and listened to the sound of a half-hundred pens scratching down my words. Beside me, Basil pumped industriously at the bellows. I realized that I could grow to enjoy this. Don't worry if it doesn't make sense yet. This demonstration should make everything abundantly clear. Looking down, I saw the brazier was warming nicely. I thanked Basil and hung a shallow metal pan above the coals and dropped two of the candles in to melt. I set a third candle in a holder on the table and used one of the sulfur matches in the drawer to set it alight. Next, I moved the pan off the heat and poured its now-melted contents carefully onto the table, forming a fist-sized blob of soft wax. I looked back up at the students. In sympathy, most of what you are doing is redirecting energy. Sympathetic links are how the energy travels. I pulled out the uh, wicking, and began kneading the wax into a roughly human-shaped doll. The first law I mentioned, similarity enhances sympathy, simply means that the more things resemble each other, the stronger the sympathetic link between them will be. I held a, the crude doll up for the class to inspect. This, I said, is Master Hem. Laughing, uh, a laughter muttered back and forth across the hall. Actually, this is my sympathetic representation of Master Ham. Would anyone like to take a guess as to why it is not a very good one? Uh, there was a moment of silence. I let it stretch out for a while. A cold audience. Ham had to traumatize to them yesterday, and they were slow in responding. Finally, from the back of the room, a student said, It's the wrong size? I nodded and continued to look around the room. He isn't made of wax, either. I nodded. It does bear some small resemblance to him in general shape and proportion. Nevertheless, it is a very poor sympathetic representation. Because of that, any sympathetic link based off of it would be rather weak. Perhaps 2% efficiency. How could we improve it? There was another silence, shorter than the first. You could make it bigger, someone suggested. I nodded and waited. Uh, other voices called out. You could carve Master Hem's face on it, paint it, and give it a little probe. Everyone laughed. I held my hand uh, for quiet and was surprised by how quickly it fell. Uh, 
Practicality aside, you assume uh, assume you did all these things. A six-foot, fully clothed, masterfully carved master hem stands beside me. I gestured. Even with all that effort, the best you might hope for is ten or fifteen percent sympathetic link. Not very good. Not very good at all. This brings me to the second law. Consanguinity. An easy way of thinking of it is once together, always together. Due to Master Ham's generosity, I have one of his hairs. I held it up and ceremoniously stuck it to the head of the doll. And as easy as this, we have a sympathetic link that will work at 30 to 35%. I had been watching Ham. While at first he had seemed a little wary, he had lapsed back into a self-satisfied smirk. He knew that without the appropriate binding and properly focused alar, all the wax and hair in the world wouldn't do one whit of good. Sure that he had taken me for a fool, I gestured to the candle and asked him, With your permission, master. He made a magnanimous wave of compliance uh, and settled back into his chair, folding his arms in front of him, confident in his safety. Of course, I did know the binding, I'd told him so, and Ben had taught me about the LR, the riding crop belief, back when I was twelve. But I didn't bother with either. I put the doll's foot into the candle flame, which guttered and smoked. There was a tense, um, held breath quiet as everyone stretched in their seats to get a look at Master Hem. Hem shrugged, feigning astonishment, but his eyes had the look of a jaw trap about to close. A smirk tugged at one corner of his mouth, and he began to rise from his seat. I feel nothing. Wh exactly, I said, cracking my voice like a whip, startling the students' attentions back, at, back to me. And why is that? I looked expectantly at the lecture hall. Because of the third law that I had mentioned, conservation. Energy cannot be destroyed or created, merely lost or found. If I were to hold a candle underneath our esteemed teacher's foot, very little would occur. And since only about 30% of the heat is getting through, we do not even get that small result. I paused to let them think for a moment. This is the prime problem in sympathy. Where do we get the energy? Here, however, the answer, the answer is simple. I blew out the candle and relit it from the brazier, muttering a the few necessary words underneath my breath. By adding a second sympathetic link between the candle and a more substantial fire, I broke my mind into two pieces, one binding hem and the doll together, the other connecting the candle and the brassiere. we get the desired effect. I casually moved the foot of the wax doll into the space about an inch above the candle's wick, which is actually the hottest part of the flame. There was a startled exclamation from where Hem was sitting. Without looking in his direction, I continued speaking to the class in the driest of tones. And it appears that this time we are successful. The class laughed. I blew out the candle. This is also a good example of the power that a clever sympathist commands. I imagine what would happen if I were to throw this doll into the fire itself. I held it over the brazier, As if on cue, Ham stormed onto the stage. It may have been my imagination, but it seemed to me that he was favoring his left leg slightly. <laughs> it appears that Master Hem wishes to resume your instruction at this point. Laughter rippled through, out, uh, through the room, louder this time. I thank you all, students and friends, and thus my humble lecture ends. At this point, I used one of the tricks of... Sorry. Uh, at this point, I used one of the tricks of the stage. There is a certain inflection of the voice and body language that signals a crowd to applaud. I cannot explain how exactly it is done, but it had its intended effect. Uh, 
I nodded my head to them and turned to face him amidst applause, which, though far from deafening, was probably more than any he had ever received. As he took the last few steps toward me, I almost backed away. His face was a fearsome red, and a vein pulsed at his temple as if he were about to explode. For my own part, my stage training helped me maintain my composure. I returned his gaze levelly and held out my hand for him to shake. It was with no small amount of satisfaction that I watched him give a quick glance to the still applauding class, swallow, and shake my hand. His handshake was painfully tight. It might have gotten worse if I hadn't made a slight gesture over the brassiere with the wax doll. His face went from livid red to an ashen white more quickly than I would have believed possible. His grip underwent a similar transformation, and I regained my hand. With another nod toward the seated students, I left the lecture hall without a backward glance. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we've got time for another, I think. Let me just check how long this next chapter is. <sighs> I find that when someone is reading, I like to listen to the page's turn. Uh, it's a bit on the longer side, but I think I think we can get through it. Forty. On the horns. After Hem dismissed his class, news of what I had done spread through the university like wildfire. I guessed from the students' reactions that Master Hem was not particularly well loved. As I sat on a stone bench outside the mews, passing students smiled in my direction. Others waved or gave laughing thumbs up. Well, I enjoyed the notoriety. A cold anxiety was slowly growing in my gut. I had made an enemy of one of the nine masters. I needed to know how much trouble I was in. Dinner in the mess was brown bread with butter, stew, and beans. Monette was there, his wild hair making him look like a great white wolf. Simon and Sovoy groused idly about the food, making grim speculations as to what manner of meat was in the stew. To me, less than a span away from the streets of Tarbine, it was a marvelous meal indeed. Nevertheless, I was rapidly losing my appetite in the face of what I was hearing from my friends. "'Don't get me wrong,' Sovoy said. "'You've got a great weighty pair on you. I'll never call that into question. But still,' he gestured with his spoon, "'they're going to string you up for this.' If he's lucky, Simmons said. I mean, we are talking about malfeasance here, aren't we? It's not a big deal, I said with more assurance than I felt. I gave him a little bit of hot foot, that's all. Any harmful sympathy falls under malfeasance. Manette pointed at me with his... Sorry. Any harmful sympathy falls under malfeasance. Manette pointed at me with his piece of bread, his wild, grizzled eyebrows arching seriously over his nose. You've got to pick your battles, boy. Keep your head down and uh, around the masters. They can make your life a real hell once you get into their bad books. He started it, I said sullenly, through a mouthful of beans. A young boy jogged up to the table, breathless. And by young boy, he means like 18, so still older than him. Uh, Voth, he asked, looking me over. I nodded, my, suddenly, my stomach suddenly turning over. They want you in the master's hall. Uh, where is it? I asked. I've only been here a couple of days. Can one of you show him? The boy asked, looking around at the table. I've got to go tell Jameson I found him. I'll do it, Simmons said, pushing away his bowl. I'm not hungry anyway. Jameson's runner boy took off, and Simmons started to get to his feet. Hold on. 
I said, pointing to my tray with my spoon. I'm not finished here. Simmons, uh, Simmons' expression was anxious. I can't believe you're eating, he said. I can't eat. How can you? I'm hungry, I said. I don't know what's waiting in the master's hall, but I'm guessing I'd rather have a full stomach for it. You're going on the horns, Monette said. It's the only reason they'd call you there at this time of night. I didn't know what he meant by that, but I didn't want to advertise my ignorance to everyone in the room. They can wait until I'm done. I took another bite of stew. Simon returned to his seat and poked idly at his food. Truth be told, I wasn't really hungry anymore, but it galled me to be and to be pulled away from a meal after all the times I'd been hungry in Tarbine. <laughs> yeah, kind of treat food differently after being hungry. That kind of hungry. When Simon and I finally got to our feet, the normal clamor in the mess quieted as folk watched us leave. They knew where I was headed. Outside, Simon put his hands in his pockets and headed roughly in the direction of the hollows. All kidding aside, you're in for a good bit of trouble, you know. I was hoping Hem would be embarrassed and keep quiet about it, I admitted. Do they expel many students? I tried to make it sound like a joke. There hasn't been anyone this term, Sim said with his shy, blue-eyed smile. But it's only the second day of classes. You might set some sort of record. This isn't funny, I said, but found myself wearing a grin regardless. Simon could always make me smile, no matter what was going on. Good friends are like that. Uh, let's see, where was I? Uh, Sim led the way, and we reached hollows far too soon for my liking. Simon raised a hand in a hesitant farewell as I opened the door and made my way inside. I was met by Jameson. He oversaw everything that wasn't under direct control of the masters. The kitchens, the laundry, the stables, the stockrooms. He was nervous and bird-like. A man with the body of a sparrow and the eyes of a hawk. Jameson escorted me into a large windowless room with a familiar crescent-shaped table. Ah, therefore the horns, the horns, the crescent. Okay. Uh, the chancellor sat at the center, as he had during admissions. The only real difference was that this table was not elevated and the seated masters were close to eye level with me. The eyes I met were not friendly. Jameson escorted me to the front of the crescent table. Seeing it from this angle made me understand the references to being on the horns. Jameson retreated to a smaller table of his own, dipping a pen. The Chancellor steepled his fingers and spoke without preamble. On the second of Catelyn, Hem called the masters together. Jameson's pen scratched across a piece of paper, occasionally dipping back into the inkwell at the top of the desk. The Chancellor continued formally. Are all the masters present? Master Physiker, said Arwill. Master Archivist, said Lauren, his face impassive as ever. Master Arith Arithmetician, Brander said, cracking his knuckles absently. Master Artificer, grumbled Kilvin, without looking up from the tabletop. Master Alchemist, said Mandrag. Master Rhetorician, Hem's face was fierce and red. Master Sympathist, said Elxidal. Master Namer, Elodin actually smiled at me. Not just a perfunctory curling of the lips, but a warm, toothy grin. I drew a bit of a shaky breath, relieved that at least one person present didn't seem eager to hang me up by my thumbs. And Master Linguist, said the Chancellor, all eight, he frowned. Uh, sorry, strike that, all nine masters are present. Uh, present your grievance, Master Hem. Hem did not hesitate. Today, first-term student Kvoth, not of the Arcanum, did perform sympathetic bindings on me with malicious intent. 
two grievances are recorded against Quoth by Master Hem. The Chancellor said sternly, not taking his eyes away from me. First grievance, unauthorized use of sympathy. What is the proper discipline for this, Master Archivist? For unauthorized use of sympathy, leading to injury, the offending student will be bound and whipped a number of times, not less than two, nor more than ten, singly across the back, Lauren said as if reading off the directions for a recipe. Number of lashes sought, the Chancellor looked at Hem. Hem paused to consider. Five. I felt the blood drain from my face, and I forced myself to take a slow, deep breath through my nose to calm myself. Does any master object to this? The Chancellor uh, looked around the table. But all mouths were silent. All eyes were stern. The second grievance, malfeasance, Master Archivist, four to fifteen single lashes and expulsion from the university. Lauren raised a level, uh, Lauren said in a level voice, lashes sought. Hem stared at me directly. Eight. Thirteen lashes and expulsion. A cold sweat crept over me, and I felt nausea in the pit of my stomach. I had known fear before. In Tarbine, it was never far away. Fear kept you alive. But I had never before felt such a desperate helplessness. A fear not just for my body being hurt, but for my entire life being ruined. I began to get light-headed. Do you understand these grievances set against you? The Chancellor asked sternly. I took a deep breath. Not exactly, sir. I hated the way my voice sounded tremulous and weak. The Chancellor held up a hand, and Jameson lifted his pen from the paper. It is against the laws of the university for a student who is not a member of the Arcanum to use sympathy without permission from a master. His expression darkened, and it is always, always expressly forbidden to cause harm with sympathy, especially to a master. A few hundred years ago, Arcanists were hunted down and burned for things of that sort. We do not tolerate that sort of behavior here. I heard a hard edge creep into the Chancellor's voice. Only then did I sense how truly angry he was. He took a deep breath. Now do you understand? I nodded shakily. He made another motion to Jameson, who set his, pen, uh, who set his pen back to the paper. Do you, Quoth, understand these grievances set against you? Yes, sir, I said as steadily as I could. Everything seemed too bright, and my legs were trembling slightly. I tried to force them to be still, but it only seemed to make them shake all the more. Do you have anything to say in your defense? The Chancellor asked curtly. I just wanted to leave. I felt the stares of the masters bearing down on me. My hands were wet and cold. I probably would have shaken my head and slunk from the room had the Chancellor not spoken again. Well, the Chancellor repeated testily, no defense. The words struck a chord in me. They were the same words that Ben had used a hundred times as he drilled uh, me endlessly in argument. His words came back, admonishing me. What? No defense? Any student of mine must be able to defend his ideas against an attack. No matter how you spend your life, your wit will defend you more often than a sword. Keep it sharp. I took, and that's also good advice, um, to think 
very carefully through things and uh, be able to defend yourself. This also requires, of course, that your actions be defensible, um, but you can defend yourself poorly if your actions are not. But uh, it is much easier to defend your, your actions if they are, in fact, defensible. I took another deep breath, closed my eyes, and concentrated. After a long moment, I felt the cool impassivity of the heart of stone surround me. My trembling stopped. I opened my eyes and heard my own voice say, I had permission for my use of sympathy, sir. The Chancellor gave me a long, hard look before saying, What? I held the heart of stone around me like a calming mantle. I had permission from Master Hem, both express and implied. The masters stirred in their seats, puzzled. The Chancellor looked far from pleased. Explain yourself. I approached Master Hem after his first lecture and told him I was already familiar with the concepts he had discussed. He told me we would discuss it the next day. When he arrived for class the next day, he announced that I would be giving the lecture in order to demonstrate the principles of sympathy. After, after observing what materials were available, I gave the class the first demonstration my master gave me. Not true, of course. As I've already mentioned, my first lesson involved a handful of iron drabs. It was a lie, but a plausible lie. Judging by the master's expression, uh, this was news to them. Somewhere deep in the heart of stone, I relaxed, glad that the master's irritation was based on Hem's angrily abridged version of the truth. You gave a demonstration before the class? The chancellor asked before I could continue. He glanced at Hem, then back to me. I played innocent. Just a simple one. Is that unusual? It is a little odd, he said, looking at Hem. I could sense his anger again, but this time it didn't seem to be directed at me. I thought... It might be the way you proved your knowledge of the material and moved to a more advanced class, I said innocently. Another lie, but again, plausible. Elxadal spoke up. What did the demonstration involve? A wax doll, a hair from Hem's head, and a candle. I would have picked a different example, but my materials were limited. I thought that it might be another part of the test, making do with what you were given. I shrugged again. I couldn't think of any other way to demonstrate all three laws with the materials on hand. The Chancellor looked at Hem. Is what the boy says true? Hem opened his mouth as if he would deny it, then apparently remembered that an entire classroom full of students had witnessed the exchange. He said nothing. Damn it, Hem! Alexadal burst out. You let the boy make a simulacrum of you, then bring him here on malfeasance? He spluttered. You deserve worse than you got. Elir Kovoth could not have hurt him with just a candle, Kilvin muttered. He gave his fingers a puzzled look as if he were working something out in his head. Not with hair and wax, maybe blood and clay. Order, the Chancellor's voice was too quiet to be called a shout, but it carried the same authority. He shot looks at Elxadal and Kilvin. Kvoth, answer Master Kilvin's question. I made a second binding between the candle and a brazier to illustrate the law of conservation. Kilvin didn't look up from his hands. Wax and hair, he grumbled, as if not entirely satisfied with my explanation. I gave a half-puzzled, half-embarrassed look and said, I don't understand it myself, sir. I should have gotten 10% transference at best. It shouldn't have given him enough to blister mass... It shouldn't have been enough to blister Master Ham, let alone burn him. 
I turned to him. I really didn't mean any harm, sir, I said in my best distraught voice. It was just supposed to be a bit of hot foot to make you jump. The fire hadn't been going more than five minutes. I didn't imagine that a fresh fire at ten percent could hurt you. I even wrung my hands a little, every bit the distraught student. It was a good performance. My father would have been proud. Well, it did, Hem said bitterly. And where is the damn mommet, anyway? I demand you return it at once. I can't. I'm afraid I can't, sir. I destroyed it. It was too dangerous to leave lying around. Hem gave me a shrewd look. It's of no real concern, he muttered. The Chancellor took up the reins again. This changes things considerably. Hem, do you still set grievance against Gvoth? Hem glared and said nothing. I move to strike both grievances, Arwul said. Ar Ar okay, frick. I'm looking at the pronunciation on this one. And, of course, it's not in the pronunciation guide. Classic. Let's just have a really difficult name and not put it in the pronunciation guide. I'm going to assume that this is Arul. It's R. It's it's A R W Y L. Okay, this is this is not an easy name to pronounce. I'm I'm gonna assume that it's maybe Welsh or something. Arul, where the W is a U sound and the Y is a U sound. So Arul. So anyway. I moved to strike both grievances, Arul said, the physicer's old voice coming as a bit of a surprise. If Hem sent him in front of the class, he gave him permission, and it isn't malfeasance if you give him your hair and watch him stick it on a mommet's head. I expected him to have more control over what he was doing, Hem said, shooting a venomous look at me. It's not malfeasance, Arul said doggedly glaring at Hem from behind his spectacles, then gra the grandfatherly lines on his face forming a fierce scowl. It would fall under reckless use of sympathy, Lauren interjected coolly. Is that a motion to strike the previous two grievances and replace them with reckless use of sympathy? The Chancellor, trying to regain a semblance of formality. I said Arul, still glaring fearsomely at Hem through his spectacles. All for the motion? Chancellor said. There was a chorus of eyes from everyone but Hem. Against? Hem remained silent. Master Archivist, what is the discipline for reckless use of sympathy? If one is injured by reckless use of sympathy, the offending student will be whipped singly no more than seven times across the back. I wondered what book Master Lauren was reciting from. Number of lashes sought? Hem looked at the other master's faces, re realizing the tide had turned against him. My foot is blistered halfway to my knee, he gritted. Three lashes. The Chancellor cleared his throat. Does any master oppose this action? I. Elksadal and Kilvin said together. Who wishes to suspend the discipline? Vote by show of hands. Elksadal, Kilvin, and Arul raised their hands at once, followed by the Chancellor. Mandrag kept his down, as did Thorn, Brandor, and Hem. Elidin grinned at me cheerily, but did not raise his hand. I kicked myself for my recent trip to the archives and the bad impression it made on Lauren. If not for that, he might have tipped things in my favor. Yeah, probably not, dude. Uh, anyway, uh, four and a half in favor of suspending punishment. Uh, the discipline stands. Three lashes to be served tomorrow, the 5th of Catelyn at noon. 
as I was deep into the heart of stone, all I felt was slight analytical curiosity about what it would be like to be publicly whipped. All the masters showed signs of preparing to stand um, and leave, but before he, but before things could be called to a close, I spoke up. Chancellor, he took a deep breath and let it out in a gush. Yes? During my admission, you said that my admittance to the Arcanum was granted, contingent upon proof that I had mastered the basic principles of sympathy. I quoted him nearly word for word. Does this constitute proof? Both Hem and the Chancellor opened their mouths to say something. Hem was louder. Look here, you little cocker. <laughs> Hem, the uh, Chancellor snapped. He then turned to me. I'm afraid proof of mastery requires more than a, a simple sympathetic binding. A double binding, Kelvin corrected gruffly. Elidin spoke, seeming to startle everyone at the table. I can think of students currently enrolled in the Arcanum who would be hard-pressed to complete a double binding, let alone draw enough heat to blister a man's foot to the knee. I had forgotten how Elidin's light... Oh, frick. Okay, his, his light voice. Uh, let's see, let me try that again. Elidin spoke, seeming to startle everyone at the table. I can think of students currently enrolled in the Arcanum who would be hard-pressed to complete a double binding, let alone draw enough heat to blister a man's foot to the knee. I had forgotten how Elidin's light voice moved through the deep places in your chest when he spoke. He smiled happily at me again. There was a moment of quiet reflection. True enough, admitted Elxadal, giving me a close look. The Chancellor looked down at the empty table for a minute. Then he shrugged, looked up, and gave a surprisingly jaunty smile, all in favor of admitting first-term student Quoth's reckless use of sympathy as proof of mastery of the basic principles of sympathy by vote. <laughs> vote by show of hands. Kilvin and Elxadal raised their hands together. A rule added his a moment later. Elidin waved. After a pause, the Chancellor raised his hand as well, saying five and a half in favor of Quoth's admission to the Arcanum. Motion passed. Meeting dismissed. Uh, the Chancellor must have an extra half vote. That must be why. Okay. Um, I don't know. Or the, uh, he takes half the vote of the grievant, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, let's see. Five and a half in favor of Quoth's admission to the Arcanum. Motion passed. Meeting dismissed. Telu shelter us, fools and children all. He said the last very softly as he rested his forehead against the heel of his hand. Hem uh, stormed out of the room with Brander in tow. Once they were through the door, I heard Brander ask, Weren't you wearing a gram? No, I wasn't, Hem snapped. And don't take that tone with me, as if this were all my fault. You might as well blame someone stabbed in an alley for not willing armor. We should all take precautions, Brander said, placatingly. You know as well as... Their voices were cut off with the sound of a door closing. Kilvin stood and shrugged his shoulders, stretching. Looked, uh, looking over to where I stood, he scratched his bushy beard with both hands, a thoughtful look on his face, then strode over to where I stood. Do you have your sigildry yet, Ilir Kivoth? I looked at him blankly. Do you mean runes, sir? I I'm afraid not. Kilvin ran his hands um, through his beard thoughtfully. Do not bother with basic artificing class. You have, uh, 
sorry, do not bother with the basic artificing class you have signed for. Instead, you will come to my workroom tomorrow, noon. I'm afraid I have another appointment at noon, Master Kilvin. <laughs> yes, he's getting whipped, I think. That was, wait, that was when they said, right? Do not bother with the basic artificing class tomorrow. Okay, let's see. Uh, I'm afraid I have another appointment at noon, Master Kilvin. Hmm, yes, he frowned. First bell, then. I'm afraid the boy will be having an appointment with my folk shortly after the whipping, Kilvin, Arwell said, with a glimmer of amusement in his eyes. Have, some th have someone bring you to the Medica afterwards, son. We'll stitch you back together. Thank you, sir. Arwell nodded and made his way out of the room. Kilvin watched him go, then turned to look at me. My workshop day after tomorrow, noon. The tone of his voice implied that it wasn't really a question. I would be honored, Master Kilvin. He grunted in response and left with Elk Sedal. That left me alone with the still-seated Chancellor. We stared at each other while the sound of footsteps faded in the hallway. I brought myself back up out of the heart of stone and felt a tangle of anticipation and fear at everything that had just happened. I'm sorry to be such so much trouble so soon, sir, I offered hesitantly. Oh, he said, his expression considerably less stern now that we were alone. How long had you intended to wait? At least a span, sir. <laughs> it's eleven days. Uh, at least a span, sir. My brush with disaster had left me feeling giddy with relief, and I felt an irrepressible grin bubble onto my face. At least a span, he muttered. The Chancellor put his face into his hands and rubbed, then looked up and surprised me with a wry smile. I realized he wasn't particularly old when his face wasn't locked in a stern expression. Probably only on the far side of forty. You don't look like someone who knows he's going to be whipped tomorrow, he observed. I pushed the thought aside. I imagine I'll heal, sir. He gave me an odd look, and it took me a while to recognize it as the one I had grown accustomed to in the troop. He opened his mouth to speak, but I jumped on the words before he could say them. I'm not as young as I look, sir. I know it. I just wish other people knew it, too. I imagine they will before too long. He gave me a long look before pushing himself from the table. He held out a hand. Welcome to the Arcanum. I shook his hand solemnly, and we parted ways. I worked my way outside, and was surprised to see that it was full night. I breathed in a lungful of sweet spring air, and felt my grin resurface. Then someone touched me on the shoulder. I jumped fully two feet into the air, and narrowly avoided falling on Simon in the howling, scratching, biting blur that had been my only method of defense in Tarbine. He took a step back, startled by the expression on my face. I tried to slow my pounding heart. Simon, I'm sorry. I'm just... Try to make a little noise around me. I startle easily. <laughs> me too, he murmured shakily, wiping a hand across his forehead. Can't really blame you, though. Riding the horns will do that to the best of us. How did things go? I'm to be whipped and admitted into the Arcanum. <laughs> he looked at me curiously, trying to see if I was making a joke. I'm sorry? Congratulations? He made a shy smile at me. Do I buy you a bandage or a beer? I smiled back. 
both. By the time I got back to the fourth floor of the Muse, rumor of my non-expulsion and admission into the Arcanum had spread ahead of me. I was greeted by a smattering of applause. Hem was not well loved. Some of my bunkmates offered odd congratulations while Basil made a special point of coming forward to shake my hand. I had just climbed up to a sitting position on my bunk and was still explaining to Basil the difference between a single whip and a six-tail when the third-floor steward um, came looking for me. He instructed me to pack up my things, explaining that Arcanum students were located in the West Wing. Everything I owned still fit neatly into my travel sack, so it was no great chore. As the steward led me away, there was a great chorus of goodbyes from my fellow first-term students. The West Wing bunks were similar to those I had left behind. It was still rows of narrow beds, but here they weren't stacked too high. Each bed had a small wardrobe and desk in addition to a trunk, nothing fancy, but definitely a step up. The biggest difference was in the attitudes of my bunkmates. There were scowls and glares, though for the most part I was pointedly ignored. It was a chilly reception, especially in light of the welcome I had just received from my non-Arcanum bunkmates. It was easy to understand why. Most students attend the university for several terms before being admitted into the Arcanum. Everyone here had worked their way up through the ranks the hard way. I hadn't. Only about three-quarters of the bunks were full. I picked one in the back corner away from the others. I hung my one extra shirt and my cloak in the wardrobe, and put my travel sack in the trunk at the foot of my bed. I lay down and stared at the ceiling. My bunk lay outside the light of the other students' candles and sympathy lamps. I was finally a member of the Arcanum, in some ways exactly where I had always wanted to be. All right, well, we've gone a little bit long today. That is the end of chapter 40. Ah. And so his legend of being ridiculous begins. But I like that his legend is punctuated with some youthful uncertainty. You see, he's used to being alone on the streets with no one to rely on, okay? Where in his troop, he asked questions of people and asked how things worked and why. In Tarbine, there was no one to guide him, and so he's learned to muddle through on his own and make do with things. But here's the thing. He's going into the university, and th this is something to be cautious of. He's going around doing things without asking first. He went over to the stacks instead of the tomes because he wasn't sure which one to go to, and instead of asking the receptionist, hey, I don't know the rules of this place. Can you explain like I'm five? Like, just explain things simply and completely without leaving out any whys or, or any, 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 um, any of the implicit, oh, everybody knows this things. Because a five-year-old wouldn't know those simple everyone knows things. So you, you have to explain carefully and explain the things that you think are obvious. Because to a five-year-old, they're not obvious. So when you, when you explain something to someone who is new somewhere, you should never... Ex so, so two things. Two sp 
two perspectives. First, if you are the one who is familiar explaining to someone who is not, and the second being uh, someone who is not familiar. If you are the one who is familiar with a topic, um, and you are explaining something to someone who is not familiar, uh, explain the basics very simply to check for understanding. Not not in a condescending way, not like, well, obviously you do this thing. Well, no, you just be like, okay, well, um, to start, we are going to do such and such, and then you, you know check and they'll probably nod or, or something, acknowledge, um, and say, all right, so, like, let's say, how do you, how do you color with crayons? Well, uh, first, um, you need something to color on, so grab a piece of paper, because we don't want to color on just anything, um, especially things that are, may be difficult to clean if they're more permanent surfaces. So um, we'll take a piece of paper, uh, and we will grab uh, a crayon and hold it like so. Um, you show them how to hold a writing implement, as I, and you know, hold it like so, and and you uh, press it gently to the page. Uh, you don't need a lot of force. Um, uh, just gently press it against the page. You want to press the wax tip, and, and you can hold it by the paper so that you don't get waxy fingers, because your fingers will melt the wax just a little bit, and you'll end up with a uh, unpleasant residue on your fingers. So anyway, uh, hold it by the paper, press it gently against the, the paper uh, on the page that you're coloring, and then uh, drag it across the page. Uh, now you're going to want to hold the paper down because this does produce some friction. So you hold the paper down with one hand, take the other, um, holding the crayon, and uh, you drag where you want the color to be. Now if you are coloring an object, um, generally you should start um, somewhere away from the lines and um, move gently toward the line. Uh, now if you hold the crayon at an angle, uh, as you color, you can create a sort of a sharpish point that will allow you to um, color in thinner areas that uh, may not have as much room. You can be more more precise with your coloring, and that will allow you to um, stay inside the lines. And it takes a little bit of practice to um, to get used to holding the crayon and to uh, get used to um, the motion of your wrist. Uh, most of the motion is going to be from your wrist and not your elbow. Um, you can move from your elbow if you need a big long line, but generally speaking you're going to move the crayon using your fingers and your wrist. Um, and just rotating that around and and uh, moving that back and forth. So uh, you'll, you'll get the feel of it in time. So it just takes some time to practice. All right, now, if you are new to something, um, you should always ask someone, um, if, if, if you are going into someone, into, God damn, that's not what I meant. <sighs> okay, if you are going into somewhere with people where there are established rules of behavior, you should learn the rules of behavior first, either through observation or uh, if things are a little more complicated, like at a library or um, something like that. Let's let's take a library, actually. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, if you've never been to a library before and you want to read books or check out movies or use the computers there at the library, um, 
you don't just walk around doing whatever, okay, you should ask a librarian how to use the library. You go up to the desk where someone is sitting, working there. Um, it'll be a reception counter, usually. Um, you go up to them and you ask, Hi, I'm new here. Uh, I've never really used a library before. I, I don't know the proper practices. Um, could you explain the basic rules to me? Uh, and then they will help you. They will say, oh, okay, well, here's how it works. Um, you'll get a library card, um, and that will allow you to check out books from the library and take them home. And you can have them for a period of uh, usually about three weeks, two, two to three weeks. And then uh, at the end of that, um, you must bring the book back because it belongs to the library, and you should take good care of it and not not beat up the book or anything. It should be returned in uh, approximately the same condition as it was lent out to you in. So um, let's talk about some proper handling on, on books and and then library etiquette. Um, this is not a place to be loud. This is a place to be quiet because people are reading. Um, you can also read books here. You can study here. Um, if you're not sure which books you're going to need right away, um, then you can, you can get whichever books you need. Um, just go up and grab them, uh, and then place them back on the shelf um, when you're done, or or place them back on a on a uh, cart for us to reshelve. If you're not sure how they go back now, um, then they might explain how the filing system works, um, where you might find different genres of fiction uh, and different subjects of nonfiction, and then um, they would they would help show you the ropes of how to use the library, and then you would know the proper rules and practices. And you might ask questions about, well, what's that area? What about the computers? How do I use those? And what's required for me to get a library card? All right. You should be thorough in your questioning so that you know all the rules, so that you don't make hapless mistakes and step on the toes of the people who are graciously allowing you to be part of their um, company, I suppose. So, what Kvoth has done incorrectly is he just, he doesn't rely on other people, and I, I understand why I've had to do some of the same thing myself, of learning to reach out for help. Um, you see it a lot in um, people who were not able to grow up, able to uh, were relying on their parents to um, answer their questions and teach them things and and do that sort of careful, inquisitive stuff. Or, or those who have been through trauma, like Kvothe has. Um, in my case. Uh, I blame my dad for this. Uh, he's just sort of not very kind in the way he would explain things. Uh, so I learned not to ask those sorts of questions, which is exactly the wrong sort of lesson to learn, of course. And so I have... You end up feeling a lot more helpless than you actually are, um, just because you don't know things, and then you don't know that it's okay to ask for help, from somebody, um, 
because you've always learned by painful experience that asking is not safe, asking is not okay, and so that's that's the wrong lesson to learn, and that's the wrong lesson to teach your children especially. Uh, it's the wrong lesson, um, unfortunately, that Kvothe has learned. And sadly, it was probably necessary in the streets of Tarbine to survive. But now he's at the university, where one should ask questions, and he's not asking nearly enough questions. So he should be relying on his friends to say, hey, I've, I, there's all these books. I don't know how this place works. Will you teach me how this place works? See, he just had to figure everything out through trial and error in Tarbine. And that's going to cause problems. I just, it's already causing him problems. Like, he didn't know about the malfeasance rule. He didn't know about the, like, the rules and procedures of the university. There's a lot that he just doesn't know that he doesn't know. And that is, earlier I talked about, um, how people discount youth and this is why it's because there, there's so much that they don't know that they don't know um in the in terms of being world wise um so like both thought he was very well traveled and like you know compared to the average person yeah but compared to the average traveler no no he's not that well traveled he's traveled about the lands of one lord basically and then now he's gone to university so with all that said um that is one of the follies of youth if you are a young person um ask a lot of questions from the people who have been there a long time things work the way they do usually for a reason sometimes there isn't a good reason but make sure you explore those reasons before you go off running away and doing your own thing. <sighs> For those of you who are not terribly young, be gentle with those younger than you. They're trying to figure things out, and there's a lot that they aren't aware of yet. Anyway. All right, it's about time to wrap this up. We've gone about 20 minutes longer than usual, so I will sign off here. Have a good night, everyone, and join me tomorrow for another episode of Books at Bedtime.